Well, uh, good evening, everybody, uh, and uh, welcome to this uh, event uh, on um, uh, ranking the American presidents. Uh, my name is Ewan Morgan. I'm professor of U.S. studies at the University College London, and uh, I've had a small role to play in this exercise. The two people who have done most of the work, uh, Simon uh, Rolf, uh, who is a senior lecturer at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and uh, especially Mike Cullinan, uh, currently at uh, the uh, uh, University of Northumbria, but soon to be a reader in American history at Roehampton University. Uh, the three of us will uh, give uh, presentations tonight. I'll start off with a very general talk about the uh, um, rating of presidents, ranking of presidents uh, exercise. Um, then uh, uh, Simon will talk about the methodology used in the uh, latest UK exercise uh, that has produced a uh, ranking of American presidents. And then Mike Cullinan will give the third talk where he'll take you through the rankings and discuss some of the uh, significant uh, outcomes of that ranking system. But I'll start us off uh, uh, in very general terms, uh, here are the objects of the exercise, uh, the 44 presidents of the United States uh, from uh, uh, George Washington through to Barack Obama. And uh, uh, what we are trying to do in this exercise is to rate, uh, rank really, all 44 of them from Washington to Obama. Uh, that produces an immediate problem, of course, uh, your ranking presidents uh, uh, over 230 years of history, uh, ranking some when uh, the United States was uh, uh, simply an Atlantic Republic. It didn't become a, tra a, a transcontinental republic, of course, until the middle of the 19th century. Uh, you're ranking uh, presidents who uh, um, uh, presided over an agrarian nation, uh, comparing them with presidents dealing with a modern economy, uh, presidents uh, who uh, uh, held office before the United States became a world power. Uh, the conventional date for America becoming a world power is 1898, when uh, uh, the United States engaged in war with Spain and began to acquire territories be beyond its uh, continental domain, and of course uh, then moving on to become a... Uh, uh, truly global power over the course of the 20th century. So the, the exercise has historical uh, problems. Uh, what we're trying to do is uh, uh, rank presidents who held office uh, in very different circumstances. Uh, nevertheless, it's something that uh, we, uh, we attempt and many other groups of scholars have attempted before us. Um, we do not attempt to rank the 45th president uh, because the, uh, 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 the exercise closed on the day that Donald Trump was elected. Doubtless he will feature in uh, future uh, uh, ratings exercises. And uh, the father of modern presidential studies in his uh, famous book, uh, uh, Presidential Power, Richard Neustadt declared, opens that book with a statement we rate presidents from the day they enter office. Well, Trump is, is currently being rated. I'm not sure that he's been rated very positively, uh, but doubtless he will figure very soon in, uh, a, in a presidential ranking exercise. Okay, why do we rate presidents? Um, uh, we don't rate prime ministers, but we rate presidents. Now, why, why this fascination with uh, presidential ranking, presidential rating? Well, one obvious uh, uh, answer to that, uh, um, the president has become the world's most powerful leader. It's not coincidental, I think, that the first significant ranking exercise was held in 1948, at the very moment that uh, the United States has emerged into uh, global superpower status and is seeking to shape a new global order uh, in the post-war post uh, era and in the early Cold War, uh, in early Cold War history. 
rightly or wrongly as well, we regard um, uh, presidents as the embodiment of what America stands for. The, pr the president is the single most significant embodiment of America in the, in the eyes of uh, most people. And of course, uh, America has uh, the, the sense it's not just a country. As we are often told, America is as much an idea as a country, an idea which um, uh, it, uh, is linked with certain values. Uh, and of course, uh, the presidency is seen as the embodiment of those values. Thirdly, the presidency as an institution uh, is something of a chameleon. Uh, uh, one political scientist, Michael Genovese, described it as elastic, uh, variable, and adaptable. Um, each president comes to office uh, with the opportunity to shape uh, the institution. Uh, the constitution itself is very brief and very vague on the powers of the presidency. Uh, so. Uh, uh, different presidents have uh, had different opportunities to shape the institution depending on the context in which they inherit the office and the ambitions they hold uh, for using the office to achieve their agenda. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that uh, uh, over, the uh, over the first 150 years of the presidential office from the um, from 1789 to 1933, only about a third of presidents actually uh, uh, assumed an activist stance to their office, uh, tried, to, uh, tried to expand their powers, tried to use their powers for fairly grandiose objectives. And two out of three of the early presidents uh, had a very limited concept of the office and in some cases, the powers of the office, the status of the office, actually declined during their tenure. But since 1933, uh, political scientists and historians would really date uh, the uh, modern presidency uh, with the accession of Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1933. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, of course, uh, uh, leads the United States in the Great Depression and World War II, and it's with him that the modern presidency begins. But every president from Roosevelt onwards has had an activist uh, idea about the presidency and has sought to expand its powers. Uh, uh, no president since 1933 has taken office with the intention of limiting the powers of the presidency. Everybody has sought to use the potential of the presidency uh, to achieve uh, ambitious objectives and in so doing expand uh, the significance of their office. Because the presidency uh, uh, is the embodiment of the executive branch uh, of the US government in a political a governing system in which separate institutions share power, the individual uh, nature of the, of the office holder becomes important. Far more so than, let's say, a British prime minister uh, who operates in the collectivist context of uh, uh, cabinet government. So another fascination of the presidency is the importance of the personality of the office holder and how sh that shapes his particular vision of the office and what he wants to do with it. And last but not least, um, rightly or wrongly again, uh, historians tend to be fixated on presidential legacy. Uh, did the president do good for the United States? Uh, and more recently, did the president do good for the world? And uh, if not, uh, then uh, what were the limitations of a particular president's legacy? So all these factors add up with a fascination for presidential rating. Who rates the presidents? Well, everyone rates the presidents. Uh, but only the uh, views of so-called experts are actually recorded. Uh, uh, the first uh, um, uh, ex uh, expert exercise was conducted, as I said, in 1948, and uh, they're coming out very regularly now. Uh, I believe on the day that ours was announced that C-SPAN also announced a U.S. specialist 
presidential ranking exercise uh, uh, in, in its own right. Um, the early efforts, uh, I have to say, uh, uh, of uh, presidential ranking exercises were held by historians who had, let's say, a liberal bias. So liberal presidents tended to do pretty well in them. Uh, the, the first uh, uh, conductors of these exercises uh, were uh, a father and son uh, who were really part of the liberal Eastern establishment, and both of them were strongly connected with the Harvard University. The first one was conducted by Arthur Schlesinger Sr. in 1948, and the next one was conducted by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in 1962. And they tended to ask their friends to participate in the exercise. Most of their friends were liberals like themselves, and so they tended to produce uh, results which uh, uh, put um, progressives stroke liberal presidents in uh, good uh, positions and uh, um, conservative ones, um, uh, less activist ones, uh, were ranked lower down. In the 1962 exercise, for example, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, the most recent president of the United States, was ranked near the bottom of the poll. And today, in virtually every exercise I've seen, Dwight D. Eisenhower ranks in the top ten because we now have a, a more um, uh, nuanced uh, idea of his achievements and his legacy. So uh, this sense that uh, uh, presidential ranking exercises produce a liberal bias uh, inspired the Wall Street Journal and the Federalist Society to combine forces for the first time in 2000 uh, to produce uh, ranking exercises in which they got to pick the rankers uh, and they tried to find uh, uh, conservative analysts and uh, scholars. Um, there were some differences between the, uh, uh, the Schlesinger polls and the uh, Wall Street Journal poll, Wall Street Journal Federalist Society poll, but strangely enough, uh, there were far more similarities in the rankings than there were differences. Uh, the first UK survey was conducted in 2011, and uh, uh, I, I, I was responsible for that one. Uh, I got fed up waiting to uh, uh, be asked to participate in a US exercise, so I decided I would conduct one based, in this case, on UK scholars. And they had to be British, by the way, which at that time unfortunately excluded Mike. Uh, 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 they had to be British and uh, they uh, uh, had to teach in either in a university or college either in the UK or Ireland and uh, that was the first one in 2011 uh, there have been other ones in uh, uh, several European countries since then uh, the Roosevelt Centre uh, in Middelburg in the Netherlands conducted uh, a Netherlandish uh, one in 2012. Question is, is there a distinctive UK perspective? After all, we're not ranking the presidents about whether they, uh, what their impact on Britain was. Uh, we're trying to rank them within the context of what we understand about American history, American politics. And again, uh, uh, the similarities between uh, the 2011 ranking exercise and comparable American ranking exercises uh, were far more evident uh, than the differences, although there were some clear differences. What is being rated? Well, I'll leave uh, uh, Simon to talk about that, but... Uh, early rating exercises were highly impressionistic. Uh, um, uh, the, uh, the people who were asked to do the ranking uh, were asked to rate presidents as great, near great, good, average, less than average, failure. And there wasn't much um, uh, guidance uh, about the specific uh, nature of uh, what was being rated. Uh, later exercises have tried to be more systematic in identifying key criteria against which president, all presidents have to be rated. Simon will explain uh, the criteria that uh, we selected. But I've got to say um, that even with the, uh, the more 
systematic and specific approach of recent exercises. Um, these uh, presidential rankings involve a lot of subjectivity. It's Im almost impossible to be objective across the entirety of the 44 presidents. A lot of subjectivity creeps in and uh, uh, you, you, you can see when we uh, uh, offer the findings of the 2017 UK survey uh, whether we've fallen into that particular trap as well. Just uh, in conclusion, you know, there are, there are difficulties, inevitable difficulties uh, with the presidential ranking, and I'll just draw your attention to four here. Firstly, John F. Kennedy, okay? What are you ranking in Kennedy? Are you ranking the promise or the substance of a presidency that lasted only a thousand days? In 2011... Uh, the UK exercise ranked Kennedy 15th out of 43. Almost at the same time, a C-SPAN ranking put him at number six. Uh, that was one of the most significant discrepancies between the US and UK uh, assessments of Kennedy uh, back uh, at the start of the second decade of this century. And uh, Kennedy, uh, from some of the comments made by... You, you get an opportunity to make brief comments on your evaluations, and uh, UK uh, uh, raters were far less captured by Kennedy's allure and appeal. They, they were more interested in the substance, whereas Kennedy still re retains a strong allure, a strong personal appeal, I think, to, to many Americans. Another particular case of difficulty, uh, uh, here we have uh, uh, a cartoon up there, Lyndon B. Johnson examining one of his prized steers. And uh, the, uh, the steer is carved out uh, with all the things that Johnson did, uh, creation of Medicare, uh, education programs, general foreign aid programs, anti-poverty programs. You could also ex include uh, the most significant civil rights reforms ever enacted in American history. But of course, there's the Vietnam War. Now, if you're judging Johnson purely on his domestic record, he would be one of the greats, I think, because of the, the way that uh, America uh, changed under him. But you can't ignore Vietnam. And uh, in the UK exercise in 2011, he came in number 11. And all this went out on a BBC um, poll, uh, a BBC web. Um, they, they were interested in it, so we got the chance to put our rankings up on the web. And Howard Dean, the one-time chairman of the Democratic National Committee, immediately responded, how can you just put... Johnson at 11 when he did so much good for America and was the greatest civil rights president in history. Well, the, the reason we put him there was you can judge him very highly on domestic issues, but unfortunately you can't ignore Vietnam as well. Similar problem with Richard Nixon. Here's Richard Nixon to his, his famous V uh, uh, for victory sign. Well, Nixon, of course, had a um, very... Uh, um, successful record as a foreign policy president, although I think recent historiography has tended to cast doubt on how significant it was, but uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, Nixon was responsible for detente with the Soviet Union, uh, for the rapprochement of the United States with the People's Republic of China, so highly significant foreign policy, but he's also the president who uh, was forced to, to well, who resigned office to uh, escape almost certain impeachment uh, over water, his cover-up uh, operations of, uh, uh, involving Watergate. Last but not least, um, uh, Ronald Reagan. Um, I, this is very personal to me. Uh, uh, I once marched against Ronald Reagan in the 1980s when I was a, in my radical phase, and uh, now I write uh, uh, a reasonably uh, admiring but not excessively admiring biography of him but I've got taken to task by many people that I'm too soft on him that uh, really should have been far too uh, uh, 
uh, far more critical of him. But the problem I find uh, with, with Reagan is this. Are you, are you evaluating his leadership? Here was a, a president who had transformative significance uh, for the United States uh, in both domestically and particularly foreign policy, or are you evaluating the outcomes of, lead of his leadership which you may disagree with. So this is, this is the whole question of, are you evaluating leadership or are you evaluating policy outcomes and so forth? On that question, which I won't try to answer here, I'll hand over to Simon. Thank you very much, Ian. So good evening, everybody, and, and thank you very much for coming. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here to talk about our exercise in the UK survey of US presidents. So I'm going to talk a little bit, and I do mean a little bit, about the methodology that we employed, mindful that we really want to get to Mike's analysis of the questions and indeed some of your questions from the floor. So I've brought up here, which is housed on the uh, Presidential History Network, unabated plug, um, the aims of the survey that we conducted uh, last year. So we took the survey, started in the middle of summer and ended on election day. Um, we thought that was a suitable date in people's diaries they would respond by. Uh, gives a focus to what else was going on. And we wanted to assess the survey, or the uh, audience, um, <coughs> across five categories. And the categories, to provide a little bit more depth, were here. So the vision and agenda setting, so looking what a president um, was aiming to do, particularly relevant for like the likes of Kennedy, you know, that vision thing, as someone else termed it. The domestic leadership, how that was a manifest, the sort of policy implications that people from the United Kingdom could observe across uh, different um, presidents. The foreign policy leadership, which perhaps had more direct implication on uh, the United Kingdom. Um, some moral authority, thinking about the standing, the status that the individual held within the policy, within the office, and the legacy. And in some senses, the legacy is perhaps the most interesting one, and I dare say, without prejudging, that's where many of the questions will come uh, in terms of what the legacy was. So we asked our colleagues, as Arthur Schlesinger did in asking his colleagues in 1948, both versions and in 1962, uh, Mike, Ewan, and myself, we sought a scholarly base so in this, in this instance, in the 2016 survey, we brought on board Mike, so he could contribute to the survey as well as help organise it, um, UK-based scholars. So whether you, whatever your nationality, if you were based within an institution in the United Kingdom, um, or Ireland, then we were able to bring on board um, your opinions. We, didn't, we were trying to be a little bit more <coughs> inclusive. We were perhaps tainted by the impacts of Brexit <laughs> uh, last summer. Um, nevertheless, we wanted to, to get a sense of people within the United Kingdom's opinions about the US president. And so we ended up with uh, 71 respondents across different institutions, but people who were employed with uh, American history, American politics, US politics, uh, US history, um, job descriptions. Now, between the three of us, we had a good understanding of who those individuals were and their affiliations. But we sent out the survey, we utilised um, the modern technology that allowed us um, to do that, and you know, which is a contrast to Ewan's paper-based exercise of five years ago, or six years ago now. And, then, and in some senses, we increased our um, response rate by virtue of that uh, facility. We also perhaps, and you know, this is one of those uh, sort of methodological questions that you know, goes beyond this particular survey, thought about the ease of completion and how that you know, tick tick, tick, tick. We've all done those Likert surveys that get sent to you by your bank or you know, your phone, mobile phone provider. And thinking about how we actually pause, pause for thought within the process. So by virtue of providing this guidance direction to the respondents, we sought to in some senses uh, alleviate some of those biases. As Ewan said, this is a subjective exercise. We were not going to uh, remove all of them, but in terms of the methodology, that's what we sought to do. For those of you uh, embarking on any you know, research project, thinking about how our methodology impacts the outcome is obviously one of the sort of key criteria. So for example, I'm standing here today on International Women's Day, and our subject matter is very poorly represented in that particular dynamic. Our respondents, much better. Not necessarily an equitable amount, 
but nevertheless, that's one dynamic which we didn't uh, qualify for, but nevertheless is uh, part of the survey results. So in terms of what we sought to achieve across um, the survey, I think in some sense I'm going to leave Mike to give you the juicy details. So I'm going to explain some of the things that weren't included uh, in the survey. So when talking about the um, sort of future opportunities that we wanted to draw out of this, we pull up the results by president. And again, this would come through in terms of what Mike was, or Mike will detail. But there's no sort of supreme surprises in this analysis. But these are, this is how we ended up with our aggregate scores marked out of 10 for the various achievements. Again, detail. But this is how it looked when we came to some of the um, detail. And, and this is really the, um, if the, the detail is very small font. Don't, worry, don't stress your eyes. But what I wanted to sort of stress about this is there are a number of variables here that Mike and I and you and haven't necessarily drawn out at this point. This is more opportunity for future research. There are lines of inquiry across the different perceptions, across the different questions, the sort of weft and weave of how research or the, the answers have fallen out that allows us to compare different dimensions of different presidents. So it tackles some of, not all of, because there is still... Um, subjectivity to this. Some of the questions around moral authority. So if you were to look at um, Franklin Roosevelt and Richard Nixon, Bill Clinton, along those three metric, or along that metric, along those three presidents, we would see a, a significant divergence, I think, between the first and the last two. Now, those are the kinds of things that may be useful in terms of future research, where we're going to take that for other um, projects. In that regard, we may much here as building a, a data set. Ewan's initial survey, this survey, and you know, to the extent to which you and Mike and I might be involved in future iterations of this, we are building something that allows other dimensions of research to be factored into um, other projects. The level of granularity that we were able to get to here in terms of our five dimensions and you know, moving across the different presidents, just go back to the methodology just to keep that to your mind. These are the criteria that we identified based on an assessment of other surveys, mindful particularly of uh, Schlesinger's origin, uh, original survey, but we also wanted to give the you know, UK dimension to this, so the legacy became you know, prejudice in our own minds, I think, to what we wanted to pull out. In terms of the uh, extra constitutional powers that a president accrues or has accrued and you know, building on Ewan's idea or quite correct idea that you know, some presidents haven't always sought to increase the power, there's not um, that ma uh, majesty throughout the process this is why we introduced uh, a zero category which allowed <coughs> colleagues to say I have no opinion, so sort of none of the above category being able to force people to rank a president who they either had no knowledge of or not a particularly strong opinion about. So a none of the above zero category was an advancement in terms of the methodology. That allowed us to factor out you know, where people were just sort of clicking, click, click, click through our uh, Likert kind of idea. The other sort of process that we had here in mind is what do we do with this information now we have it? Now we're sat here today and we're you know, sort of invested in it. But also to think about the methodology of you know, how this is disseminated. To what other sources? Is this you know, a data set that can provide uh, questions for an undergraduate um, American politics class? Is this something that provides research to um, promote the study of America? Is this something that keeps the American presidency, whether we like it or not, in the mind's eye of our students and indeed our colleagues? These are all questions that you know, we're sort of open-ended to a degree. And in some senses, depend upon what you think about it. You know, we have an opinion stood up here, but also what do you want to do with this information? It strikes me, you know, individually, that these are points of information, data, that we can utilise to provide guidance to other sorts of research questions that we want to pose. Be that in a purely academic sense of you know, potential PhD projects, or in terms of the sort of public profile of American studies. American history, the American president in the United Kingdom, and indeed possibly elsewhere. You know, we limited ourselves to the United Kingdom in the survey, 
you know, to what extent would the discussion have been different had we included colleagues based in European universities? Could we have regulated that? Again, I think that would be, you know, for, for colleagues based elsewhere, that would be a very interesting project. Can you utilise as a comparator this study against one conducted within French institutions or indeed beyond uh, the United uh, Europe? You know, maybe Canadian studies colleagues would be interested in that. I think also one of the significance of legacy in this, and this will be sort of my final point before I hand over to Mike, is about the impact of your successor and predecessor, which is something I've always think, thought about when looking into the presidency is, well, if the guy before you was a star, how do you follow that up? You know, particularly for you know, something that you know, Johnson felt in arriving in the office under you know, short uh, notice circumstance. How do you deal with that legacy when the legacy was not necessarily brought to a sufficient end? How do you deal with your successor? What baton do you pass over to him? That letter you leave in the drawer. That kind of uh, scenario. Now, this judgment matters when we take the survey. What was the significance of the predecessor? You know, the revisionism. You know, you and alluded to it with regard to Eisenhower. You know, it's been a very strong feature of the historiography of the last decade, the revisionism of Eisenhower. The degree of revisionism of Nixon, both ways, in sort of positive and negative terms. Recently, uh, Reagan, and possibly even under present circumstances, revealing all of my individual prejudices, um, George W. Bush. The, school for, the, the opportunity for historicisation and revisionism is something that this survey and indeed others need to take into account. And then we've got the final uh, sort of comparative analysis of UK-based surveys with the now plethora of American, different American surveys and how they did. Okay, that's the methodology bit over. We'll now hand over to Mike for the analysis. All right, well, thanks everyone for coming out tonight for uh, an event which you actually could have probably just logged onto the website and seen the results of, but it's the analysis that I guess in some ways is important. And before we get started, uh, I just want to say many thanks to two groups that helped make this possible, uh, the British Association of American Studies, which helped fund some of this, as well as the uh, U.S. Embassy in London, which also helped uh, contribute to, to, uh, to the research. Um, and before, you know, before we... Uh, before we hear the drum roll and I announce that Emma Stone is actually the winner of this year's presidential survey, um, I, want, I want to thank all the colleagues around the UK who spent, some spent quite a bit of time thinking about this, writing uh, 300 words plus, but also pining over doing it wrong one way, then asking to redo it again. And it was a long process. And I think what we've got is something that's fairly interesting. So, but interesting, but maybe not so surprising. So the trio of greats. These three presidents ranked the highest in the 2016 UK ranking. They ranked the highest in the 2011 ranking. They ranked the highest in almost virtually every single US ranking of presidents as well. The difference, perhaps, is that Franklin Roosevelt ranks highest in the UK ranking. And this is the second time. The, the first one in 2011 ranked Franklin Roosevelt highest as well. The difference this time is that the margin between Franklin Roosevelt and second place, Abraham Lincoln, is shrinking. So uh, respondents overall ranked Franklin Roosevelt <clears throat> with a 9.01 overall ranking, which is incredibly high. Uh, and, and you can see that Abraham Lincoln came eight one hundredths of a percent, uh, or eight hundredths of a, of a point, I should say, away from, from Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt topped two categories, foreign policy and vision and agenda setting. And Abraham Lincoln came first in three categories, uh, moral authority, positive historical significance of legacy, and domestic leadership. But the real difference is where Franklin Roosevelt excels in foreign policy leadership. So this is something that the respondents felt that, uh, that Roosevelt did much better than anyone else. In fact, the margin between Roosevelt on foreign policy leadership and, and Lincoln is 1.1 point. So uh, that's it's a pretty significant margin at this point you know, this kind of end of the, the spectrum. <clears throat> and Washington is an interesting one as well in the trio of greats because he seems to be 
fading uh, into third place by quite a bit. So the margin between Roosevelt and Lincoln is quite small. If you look at the margin between Lincoln and Washington, it's eight times the difference between Roosevelt and Lincoln. So it's, it's quite vast between number two and number three. Although this still remains the top trio uh, of, of great presidents, and it really has since, as you had said, surveys began in 1948. These remain the top, uh, so no surprise there. What I will say is that most American surveys do not tend to rank Franklin Roosevelt first. They tend to have Lincoln there. Although at different times, Franklin Roosevelt does uh, pop into the number one spot. And depending on who's surveying those, the Federalists uh, are, are not putting uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt atop. Uh, but, the, uh, but Siena College, for example, every now and then will put Franklin Roosevelt first. But it tends to be a, maybe more of a liberal bias there. And it might be the case that we're seeing that here in the respondents uh, in the UK. But as everyone has said so far, this is subjective. And so you know, this is something that I'd welcome your comments on afterwards in terms of where that bias might exist. With eight hundredths of a point between them, uh, you know, it's the, the, there's something there that uh, subjectivity must certainly come into play at, at some point. Uh, I quickly turn to the contemporary presidents. There's only one president who has held office since 1960 that made the top 10, and that is Barack Obama. Uh, and he comes in at number seven. Now, the rest of the contemporary presidents come in at a sort of middling position. So you have Ronald Reagan topping that uh, position out at number 13, Jimmy Carter at number 18, Bill Clinton at number 19, and George H.W. Bush at number 21. So the contemporary presidents actually get a pretty you know, fair doing, given that we probably know them the best. And if you look at the responses from the survey, uh, respondents gave more zero scores for early republic and antebellum presidents. Almost everyone, and, and actually for Franklin Roosevelt, everyone ranked Roosevelt in every category. And if you look at these contemporary presidents, almost everyone, virtually everyone, uh, uh, ranked these or, or rated these. So we know them better, and that might mean that we know their flaws as well as their, uh, their, um, their positive impact or their, their positive legacy. And so that's probably why, uh, although again, this is speculative, why they come in at a middling position. Obviously, Barack Obama coming in at number seven, uh, fresh uh, off the beach uh, in Hawaii. Um, I think being the first African-American president certainly has uh, a lot to do with where he sits there. I think the vision and agenda setting, he certainly ranked very well uh, there. And, and also uh, in domestic policy, despite the fact that the Affordable Care Act looks to be on the chopping block this week, uh, he, that might be one of the reasons why he did so well in, in domestic leadership. There's one exception, and that's George W. Bush. He was ranked number 34. He's the lowest ranked of any post-World War II president and the lowest ranked since the 1920s. Warren Harding is the only modern president that is ranked, and, and Harding is known for the scandal of Teapot Dome, bribery in the Veterans Bureau and in uh, the Interior Department and in the Justice Department. I mean, Watergate in many ways, I think, but then I'm a historian of early 20th century, uh, is, is not really comparable to, to Harding's transgressions. So it's amazing in many ways that George W. Bush finds himself in, in Harding's company. Um, but what I think is interesting is, and something that Simon alluded to is that his um, popularity might be rising somewhat, somewhat. We saw Eisenhower go up in the, the rankings over the years. Uh, George W. Bush might find himself among the contemporary presidents in a higher place in, in future ratings. You know who does really well are the founders. They come out, although less people responded to the founders. In other words, they, they felt they didn't know them as well as they knew contemporary presidents. The ones that did feel that they knew them ranked them very highly. So the first six presidents are almost idealized. You have George Washington at number three, Thomas Jefferson at number five, John Adams makes the top 10, James Monroe comes in at number 14, and James Madison at number 15. And I should add, he's not pictured there, but John Quincy Adams comes in at number 17. Now, this is fascinating to me. James uh, Madison watched, the, well, he didn't watch, but the White House burned down on his watch. Um, and he's ranked just uh, behind James Monroe, probably one of the most significant uh, early Republic presidents. What's also amazing to me is that uh, John Quincy Adams and John Adams, the two presidents of that era who never held slaves, 
do not rise up as high uh, as, as you might expect, although maybe higher than they do in, in U.S. rankings as well. What's also worth noting is the long service of each and every one of those first six presidents. So, you know, they have a pre-presidential uh, pre career, and really I think uh, if we could add to that list of people that you would put on the board of mixed, um, mixed legacies or, or how we interpret them, John Quincy Adams had a fantastic career as a Secretary of State, and he had a fantastic career after the presidency as a congressman, the only president to take on a political career after leaving the White House. Did the respondents rank John Quincy Adams for his short four years in office when he didn't get anything done, or did they rank him on his pre- and post-presidential career? And I think what you're seeing in the, in the founders here is uh, a reverence for what these six leaders did in their time before and after uh, becoming president. Again, that's speculation, uh, but then some of the qualitative feedback does bear that out as well. Who are the failures? Well, you've got John Tyler at number 36, Millard Fillmore at number 39, Franklin Pierce at number 40, and uh, the always disheveled looking James Buchanan uh, in last place at number 41. Tyler, Fillmore, Pierce, the first three, they failed to arrest the sectional dif uh, uh, differences that were breaking out before the Civil War. And James Buchanan, of course, is often, um, is often blamed in many ways for the onset of the Civil War uh, after he leaves the White House and Abraham Lincoln uh, takes over. None of these bottom five, well, there's four here, but none of the bottom five uh, sought renomination of their party or were renominated by their party. They were, in some cases, renominated by other parties or uh, not renominated at all. They're all one-term presidents, and they're all in the years preceding uh, the, the Civil War. So it's quite amazing. And this might have something to do with the fact that you have a leader like Abraham Lincoln, or maybe, thank goodness, there was a leader like Abraham Lincoln that was around in a, at a time when uh, these four were seen to be such failures. The other thing that really uh, came out in the, the survey was that scandal had a major impact on how people viewed leadership, and particularly on that question of moral authority, which is something that, um, uh, that Simon referenced there about how we might think about that category just on its own. Because people like Bill Clinton, who make it to number 19 on the list overall, was almost near the bottom for mor moral authority, perhaps because of the sex scandals, whitewater, you name it. Uh, he was impeached, of course. So he takes a major hit on that category. These three do the same. Warren, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson comes in at number 37, of course. He's the only other president to have, uh, to have been impeached, and he joins Clinton at the bottom of that list on moral authority. Warren Harding, I've already mentioned, Teapot Dome and the scandals uh, of his era. Uh, Harding is at the bottom, too, and um, the greatest scandal, I guess, of living memory, Watergate leads Nixon <coughs> to come at the bottom of that list. In fact, the lowest ranking given to any president in any category is Nixon for moral authority. He gets under two. So, I mean, even, even Andrew Johnson and Warren Harding do better in that category. Bill Clinton does better. So Nixon, our, our memory of him is, is amazing because he comes in 26th place, which actually is nowhere near Harding or Johnson. And yet, his, his, the way we view him as a moral creature, his ethics, I guess, are, are at the very bottom of that list. So, he, so you can make up for it. And I guess the moral of the story, if we're talking about morals, is that you might not even be remembered for your ethical transgressions. So uh, Grover Cleveland tops Richard Nixon. This is a president who in his first uh, run at office, he runs three times. He wins the popular vote three times. The only president other than uh, Franklin Roosevelt to do that. Um, and Grover Cleveland uh, has a sex scandal in the 1880s, and you know, he's got an illegitimate child and you know, you know, out, of, out of wedlock, and it's a, it's a huge news story. It doesn't derail his campaign, and it doesn't derail his legacy in the rankings. In fact, no one seemed to think that Cleveland ranked poorly on, on moral authority, and the same could be said for Harry Truman, who comes in eighth place overall. Harry Truman has a number of scandals in the last two years of his presidency, uh, and uh, mink coats given to his wife, uh, IRS scandal, and that doesn't seem to be remembered at all. So I suppose the good news is, is that you might be involved in a scandal, but it may not affect your overall legacy. There is something about mediocrity and single-term presidents, and um, I sort of hesitated to put 
James K. Polk up here, who is a one-term president, but he promised to be a one-term president, so perhaps he shouldn't be uh, with this group. But he comes in at number 22, which is right at the beginning of the second quartile. So these presidents all rank pretty much in the middle. All of these presidents served one term, and that may have had something to do with the reason why they were seen as mediocre. In fact, the six on the right, we've got William Howard Taft at 25, Martin Van Buren at 27, uh, Gerald Ford at number 28, Herbert Hoover, 29, uh, Benjamin Harrison, see, I just forgot him, so, so mediocre, um, and uh, uh, Rutherford, or rather fraud, behaves at uh, number 32. Uh, Taft loses the 1912 election. In fact, he's the only Republican to ever come in third place. Uh, he loses to both Theodore Roosevelt and to Woodrow Wilson in 1912. Uh, 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 Martin Van Buren loses uh, his reelection in, his, uh, in, 19, in 1841. Gerald Ford famously loses to Jimmy Carter, although quite narrowly, in 1976. Hoover loses to FDR in 32. Uh, Benjamin Harrison loses to Cleveland twice, although definitely the second time around. And Rutherford B. Hayes just decides to not give it another go. His first election was questionable in 1876. He's called Rutherford Fraud B. Hayes for a reason. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he decides not to run again. So there's something about winning one election, or closely winning one election, and not, not giving it a go the second time around, or, or losing the second time around. And there's some big changes and some small changes. So. Uh, at the area of what Arthur Schlesinger called the near greats, those, one that, those ones that don't quite get into the next, the, you know, the trio of greats, the ones just below that, in our survey, they remain largely the same. Theodore Roosevelt moved up one spot to fourth, taking Thomas Jefferson's place from 2011 in the original survey. It seems that Roosevelt is now firmly ensconced across all surveys at number four. So it's not unusual, that change. And Woodrow Wilson comes in at number six, which is exactly where he was uh, in 2011. The big changes are Ulysses S. Grant, who rises six places. The biggest move, by the way, from 2011 and, and 2017 or 16 is six places. So Grant, Grant and Jackson are the two biggest movers. Grant goes from 29 to 23. And there's good reason for this, probably. There's been a, um, a revisionist movement in Grant historiography uh, really since the early 2000s, but maybe even the 1990s, that has seen him less of a whiskey guzzler and cigar smoker uh, and corruption, uh, 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 leading a corrupt government, and, and being more of a stable hand at the Republican uh, helm uh, at the end of Reconstruction. Andrew Jackson uh, moves down in the survey from 8th uh, place to 16th, and again, we're seeing in the reputation of Jackson in the U.S. and all over the world that things like the Trail of Tears, uh, the, the, the rise of the spoil system in the United States, you know, slavery uh, as being a reason for Jackson to come down. In fact, I put the $20 bill up there because as some of you might know, Jackson is likely to come off that. Hamilton is saved by the musical. Uh, Jackson is he's going down. Uh, 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 so... Those are, the, those are the big movers, but what I wanted to compare all of this to, which I think is useful, is, is and this is mentioned before, the C-SPAN uh, survey, 2017 survey, came out the very weekend that our survey came out. Um, and I think what's remarkable is that uh, we, we surveyed around the same number of people, and the results are incredibly similar, although there's some interesting differences as well. If you look at the top four, they're exactly the same. They're not identical, in terms of where they place, but the top four are the same top four in both surveys. The difference being uh, Franklin Roosevelt's in third place in the C-SPAN survey, and C-SPAN has made a big effort to get conservative voices uh, onto their survey. So this is probably the reason why Franklin Roosevelt has a, a not so good of a showing as he does in the UK survey. You'll see that Thomas Jefferson is slightly lower. Uh, he's fifth in our survey, he's seventh in C-SPAN, and Ronald Reagan does substantially better in the C-SPAN ratings. But again, this might be because C-SPAN has introduced a number of conservative analysts to the survey. But if you look at the first 13 there, they're the same in both surveys. The places might change, but the, the top 13 in C-SPAN are the top 13 in our, in our rankings as well. And if you look at the bottom 13, now C-SPAN decided to include William Henry Harrison, who was in post 
for 30 days, probably not fair to rank him. Andrew Garfield, who's around before he gets shot for uh, 199, 200 days. Again, we decided it wasn't fair to rank those two, so we took them out. But if you look at the bottom and the top, they're pretty much identical, bar a few changes here and there. Where the major differences exist are Jimmy Carter. And I can't help but think of the Simpsons episode where they unveil a statue of Jimmy Carter and people throw fruit at it and say, he's history's greatest monster. Uh, in America, you know, he ranks really far below where we, where we put him. Uh, so he's, he's uh, 18th in the UK. He's 26th in the US. And I think the memory of the 1970s, uh, the stagnation of the economy, uh, you know, Newsweek used to print articles about, you know, who's going to be our new hero. <laughs> Jimmy Carter wasn't it. And then Ronald Reagan and the Reagan Revolution, the memory of that has a major impact, I think, on the C-SPAN rankings and maybe less of uh, an impact on ours. The two Adamses do, they don't fare as well. And I thought, um, I thought David McCullough's documentary about, the, about John Adams would have, would have maybe raised it. He doesn't really come up too much. And there's a big movement in the United States now to, to, to create a memorial to Adams in DC, of which there isn't one. Uh, and it doesn't look like they're gonna do it this time either. Uh, they've been given 21 years to do it. They're almost at the end of that now and it's, it's still not happening for them. So why does Adams continue? I mean, he's the only founder to not own slaves. That's a remarkable trivia question, if nothing else. Uh, and John Quincy Adams, I can kind of understand why he's there. I think we had this, this I think some of the respondents in our survey definitely grappled with pre- and post-presidential impact. And Quint John Quincy Adams has a big pre- and post-presidential impact, but not a great impact in those four years. And then James K. Polk, a nationalist hero who expanded the country about as much as Jefferson did, always fares a lot better in, in U.S. surveys. So those are the big discrepancies. Uh, I'll leave those uh, on the, uh, the screen there and just say a couple things about objectivity, because obviously, Everyone that took the survey recognizes that uh, we're not entirely uh, objective, and I think all of the, the US-based scholars would recognize the same thing as well. Um, I think if we look at Obama and George W. Bush, we can look at the passions that are still uh, in our, fresh in our minds, whether it's the Iraq war or the 2008 election and the promise of uh, Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, and I think we can also think about the antebellum era. It's quite far away from us, and we might not feel like we know that era as well, and that might have some impact on our rankings also. But overall, there's great similarities that, that suggest to me that despite the fact that we, we might have different political contexts that we're working from, or, uh, or political cultures for that matter, that actually our views of success and failure are quite similar. And I know critics of presidential rankings will say, well, this is about as useful as comparing apples and oranges, which I would say they're both fruit, so there is some reason to compare them. But, uh, but beyond that, putting these presidents in a sort of juxtaposition allows us, it sort of draws us in, I think. It makes us think about them, and it makes us think about what makes a good leader. Thank you.